0: Trigger warning. This podcast contains a deep and detailed discussion about sexual abuse, including sexual assault and rape. This podcast also contains deep and detailed discussions about suicide, self-harm and miscarriage. Some listeners may find this episode extremely upsetting or distressing, so please listen with caution. thanks for joining me for another episode of the just Checking in podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up by the mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations i am your host freddie cocker each pod i check in with a very special guest we have a natter about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we'll discuss it My special guest for this episode is someone who has inspired me, supported me, and was one of, if not the main reason, I came out about being sexually assaulted as a child. Her name is Tony, but for the purposes of this pod, which I will explain, we will use her legal pseudonym, Ella Brooks, in the show notes and for the title of the pod. She's a trauma-based consultant, campaigner, and speaker in men's mental health and workplace wellbeing. She is the author of The Right Thing to Do, reporting rape in Britain's criminal justice system and the founder of Four Our Men, a community space dedicated to educating and discussing men's mental health and emotional health in the workplace. In the book, Tony writes about her experience of being raped and sexually assaulted by her former boss at a work Christmas party, her life journey and how the crimes against her were dealt with in the criminal justice system. The book was the most difficult book I've ever read, in a positive sense, and the commonalities i found in Tony's journey are scars I still hope to address and heal in the coming years, particularly the ones she describes in the book around people-pleasing anxiety, which I've already done a little bit of work on, to be fair. Tony's journey is so deep and so important that I'm dedicating this episode entirely to her book, which we'll discuss in three parts as the book lays out. We'll discuss how and when she was raped by her former boss as well as briefly touch on her other experiences of rape and sexual abuse and the impact that had on her mental health, her livelihood and her relationships with family and friends. We also discuss the stigma around miscarriage which she has experienced including once after being raped by her boss, suicide, panic attacks, breaking down rape myths in society and how she thinks the justice system needs to improve to treat rape victim survivors better and with dignity, empathy and respect. This is one of the deepest pods I've ever done, so please, please listen with caution. But it's a story I hope shines a light on this deeply stigmatised subject for both women and men, but is a crime largely committed against women, with a balance currently approximately 85,000 women and 12,000 men, according to research conducted by Rape Crisis in 2016. In part two, we will talk about all the amazing work Tony does in men's mental health, especially in the police services. Tony is one of the most resilient and inspirational people I know, And I'm hugely privileged that she agreed to tell her story on the Just Checking In pod. So this is Tony's story. Tony, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this, as I know you haven't done much media at all around the book. I've said this to you several times, including before we chatted about the book and the pod, but the book just floored me in so many places and I'm so glad I read it. We're going to talk all about it shortly, but just quickly given how much of your heart and soul you poured into it how has the feedback been to it and how proud are you of it now that it's out i knew you would make sure your favorite color pink could adorn the front cover
1: yes i never really considered writing it it's a little bit weird still when people tell me that they're writing a book and i sort of forget i've written one which sounds quite funny but it's one of those things that you work so hard and you kind of put it out and then you crack on with life. But I have been blessed that the feedback so far has been really positive, even if people have found it difficult to read like yourself. And I, I think, you know, a lot of victim survivors are reading it and reflecting on their own experiences a bit differently and giving them a different perspective. And I've got quite a lot of police reading it as well. And they say it's giving them a different perspective, which I think is really all I could ask for. For. I am really proud of it, but as I said, sometimes I think because, as you said, I put so much of myself into it. For me, it was never about writing a book, it was more about having a voice, and the academic research and everything came along as a secondary. That I sometimes do forget I've written a book and it's a bloody big book. <laughs> you know, it's got 16 pages of references and citations, and I suddenly, you know, it wasn't until particularly because I'd been working on it as a digital document for over a year. I hadn't printed it out to edit it or anything like that. So it wasn't until I got the proof copy through and I saw how small the font was, but how heavy the book felt and how thick it was. And I was suddenly thinking, shit, I actually wrote a book. So every now and then I surprised myself, but I have been blessed that you know, even people that don't necessarily agree with everything that I've written and I don't expect them to, um, they said, you know, that it sparked some great conversations with their colleagues and other people, which is fantastic.
0: That's great to hear, Tony. I wish we were recording this pod at a different time, given the horrific and tragic news about Sever Everard, which happened this week at time of recording. I know it's affected you a lot, Tony, so I'm not going to ask you about it, but I just thought I'd add this in so the listeners know and have some context what we're going to discuss. And I hope this conversation helps the national conversation as well and educates some people so we have got a mountain to get through so shall we crack on with the show let's dive straight in and talk about your journey, Tony, and the book itself as it lays it out in great detail. So I ask all my guests this question first, but walk me through your early life if you can, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Tony we meet here? And shall we start with primary school first, as I believe this is where your love of writing began so much so that you would rush through work in order to be able to get to the library to read, is that right?
1: Yeah, I mean, back in my sort of primary school days, I was absolutely teacher's pet. I was that annoying, geeky girl that just loved to study, loved to learn. And I've never really lost that appetite, I don't think. But I think I was very lucky with my primary school. You know, you went up in a class of 30, so you really did go to school with your friends, you know, and I had beautiful friends and I was popular because we were all sort of study people and it was a great year and I think, yeah, most of my school reports to my mum through that age where you know something along the lines of she's very chatty and she rushes through work but she does it well and I don't really think I've stopped being any of those and so I think for me that was really where I learned to love writing I just seemed to have a natural ability with it and I would yeah as you say rush through my work because you know certainly I think it was in Year three, our teacher's reward was that you could go and sit in this little room, which was a library with all your books, and of course, and then my mum would regularly bust me at night because she put the lights out and then I'd be under my duvet with a torch reading a book, you know, hardcore. And so, yeah, I think words have always been in my life. And I wouldn't really say that I had mental health problems or anything like that. But I do, looking back on my life a lot throughout the book, I sort of do see snippets where it came through that perhaps trauma was sort of peeping through even as young as eight and nine into my life. But On the whole, yeah, I was that annoying, happy childhood, you know, like my mum loved me, my family loved me, great friends, school holidays where you could guarantee it was sunny and you'd all be out before the days of mobile phones and and everything. So, God, I sound so old there, but yeah, it was just a love of learning and and being around people, I think.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you what you said there about mobile phones and I always can judge how close my friends are when I still have their home number and their mobile number as a contact and I've never forgot I've never deleted them. It's fair to say Tony that it was secondary school where the first sort of mental health difficulties began and they were extremely difficult for you. It was age 13 where you became ill with depression for a significant period of time and you also began to experience quite serious undiagnosed psychosis which I'm sure just no one knew about you know back then. If you could just tell me about this period of your life and how you felt during those years.
1: Weirdly, and I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, I'd probably say it's the former, is I don't remember much of my years from when I was about 13. It very much felt as though I woke up one day and I just wasn't well and I've never really shaken it since. And obviously there's lots of research and and studies that argue that that can happen during puberty, especially for girls and, and all that kind of stuff. But I just knew that all of a sudden I felt like I changed overnight and I did become very very unwell and yeah I I just I don't remember it even when I've tried I think just that has been my default trauma response is to just not remember things or have very fragmented memory but there was one night I think when I was 14 and I think I was going through a lot like secondary school was not kind to me like the friends that i made and there was lots of you know you're friends with two of them in the morning by the afternoon you're not friends with them but you're friends with others and of course we all know the damage that that can do um, and I think because I was unwell as well it was a perfect storm but yes that I had a night when I was 14 and I remember that I don't think I'd slept in sort of 36 hours and I'd still gone to school and I remember looking at the clock and thinking it was 4am and I'd been literally pacing the same sort of three metres of my bedroom for hours and I just remember collapsing to the floor and rocking myself and I was convinced that I was schizophrenic and in hospital and I was actually just imagining myself at home. It was very difficult but I think what made it worse is, and and I think unfortunately we still have this issue and it's not going to go anywhere anytime soon, is that actually we don't talk about mental health in children and you know we assume that children can't have poor mental health before they're at the age of sort of society you know understanding society's rules and relationships and actually it can happen at any age you know i remember that i would go to the gp so i would skip school and arrange a GP appointment on my own at 13 and I'd rock up and I remember when GP just turned around and I had a very very difficult relationship with my mum at that point because I with my depression and psychosis I just became extremely angry and combatant and I would absolutely hate my mum and I think what made it hard was that part of the psychosis was that I wouldn't say I had voices in my head but I was very much having... Incoherent thoughts um, and intrusive thoughts, and they weren't making sense. And I was convinced that my mum had adopted me. I couldn't deny I was my dad's. I looked just like him, but I was convinced. I thought, oh well, if my mum, if I was really my mum's, then she would see that I'm unwell and I'm not just angry um, and I'm not this terrible teenager. So I remember that she'd go to work and I would ransack her bedroom looking for my birth certificate because I had such paranoid thoughts and I was absolutely convinced. When I went to the GP, I just remember her, she turned around, she said, there's nothing we can do. You need to go and speak to your mummy and come back. And I was 13 and nobody considered that a safeguarding issue. And so I think, you know, when we talk about reaching out for mental health, we do have to recognise how one interaction can really shape our views of the whole system.
0: At this point, you also began to... Self harm quite seriously as well, Tony. At one point, you said you had anxiety when you didn't have a knife on you in school, such was your urge to do it as a soothing tool or maybe a, a comfort tool. For those who don't understand this mindset, can you educate the listeners for me and, and how you felt in that moment and maybe what are the right things to do or wrong things to do when someone finds out a loved one is self harming?
1: Yeah, for me, it was such a bizarre journey with it. I distinctly remember seeing. I think I was about 14, almost 15, and I saw another girl in school. I remember asking, you know, I saw a girl's scars, and then I asked one of the other girls, I was like, what's that on so-and-so's arm? And they explained, and I thought... And I remember having just hours of thinking, I don't understand how you can harm yourself. Like, your body won't let you harm yourself. Like, we all fear being hurt. I couldn't get my brain around it. And I remember just kind of having a night where... I was just desperate, you know, I was having another night like I did, I was just pacing the room, and and I remember I did it for the first time, and it hurt, I think, but at the same time it felt like such a release of all the adrenaline, and everything that had sort of been built up with nowhere to go, and unfortunately it, it became an outlet for me, and... It was a daily outlet for me. It was a routine. I would come home from school and then I would do it in the evening because that was what got me through the day. And, and I never self harmed at school, but as you say, I had to have my knife with me because it was that comfort blanket, just knowing I could. And it's very bizarre because you do then not feel anything when you do it. And again, you, you know, when you explain that to other people. You come back to the mindset that i initially had going this makes no sense like how can you do it when everything on your brain should say that you shouldn't be able to do this to yourself and i don't profess to know the science behind it but for me it was very much yeah that comfort blanket and it was self-destructive but it kept me alive and i think we need to have some very honest conversations about self-harm you know we get very we like to label coping mechanisms as good or bad, particularly when you get into adulthood and you start saying, oh, well, drugs are bad. And I'm thinking, well, alcohol's not great either, but you do that every Friday and Saturday. It's very like person dependent. It's very subjective. And I would never say that I'm proud of my self-harm, but I did what I had to do to survive. And I'm not ashamed of it. And I think what we need to do is, you know, I do believe that we are getting better at discussing self-harm in sort of teenage years, in adolescence. And we are recognising that, you know, it's not attention-seeking because actually if you look at the behaviours, particularly with cutting, it's, it's full of shame and you do everything in your power not to show other people. You know, I do it now and I, as an adult, and I'll see people... With scars on their forearms and their thighs, and in the summer, and they'll see other people that are they're in jeans and and sweatshirts, and I think, oh, I wonder, like, I wonder if that's what you're hiding, and it, it gives you a different perspective, I think, and and actually, once you do, it's sort of a secret club that people don't talk about, but actually, if you do self harm, particularly with cutting, I think you instantly see it on other people, even if their scars are years old and and very well healed, and you just think. There's a lot of us that did what we had to do to survive and I haven't done it for many, many years now. Um, But for a good three and a half, four years, it was absolutely part of my daily life.
0: I really appreciate your honesty, Tony, there. And I think it's a, a really important discussion that we need to have in the future. Growing up, I'm right in saying that your home life was not the easiest place for a young child to grow up, especially because your father was pretty abusive to your mother. At one point, I think he even threatened to kill her you're estranged from your father now but such was the ferocity of the abuse he inflicted that you have several mental health scars from him as a result and I believe that you felt quite conflicted in the past from stopping him becoming destitute as well. Can you just tell me about maybe your memories of this period and what effect did that have on your mental health and maybe going forward as an adult?
1: Yeah I mean I think my dad and weirdly I didn't really understand it until I started researching and writing the book but I would always say my dad was loving but he could be very cold and actually I realise now that he was incredibly narcissistic and abusive with it. He was very hot and cold and that sort of, you know, when you talk about the mental health scars, it's it's one of the reasons I'm so empathetic. Is because I spent my childhood being hyper vigilant to his moods, you know, I had to read his moods in an instant and he could be your best friend to your face and then he would just say the most vile things but he was never outright abusive to my mum it was all through me you know it would be like oh your mum's useless and you know the next time I see her I'm going to kill her and my mum wouldn't say that about him you know she's very much like I want you to have a good relationship with him so despite her issues with him she never and she wouldn't let any of my family talk about him badly around me because she didn't feel that that was fair which I fully respect and I appreciate that's not very easy for a lot of parents when they split up but I think you know my dad was an absolute force and the weird thing is that he looks just like James Gandolfini in in The Sopranos you know from the like the thin, like he's Italian like thinning black hair the gold sovereign rings and the I really struggled to see You know, obviously James has now passed, but I struggled to see any kind of photos of him as Tony Soprano because he was like my dad. And, you know, he could be very loving when it suited him, very cold when it didn't. And so actually there was lots of gaslighting. So I think even from eight and nine, I was writing poetry, talking about how much my dad had upset me. But I remained or we remained in each other's lives until I was about 26. But the older I got, the more I started to see him for what he was like. And then unfortunately, at sort of 26, I found out he was homeless. And so he's missing and now um, presumed dead. And people say, do you want to find him? And I have to realise you can't help everyone. Like people have to want to be able to be helped. And he unfortunately doesn't have that capability. And I've had to sort of accept that as difficult as it is because you know you're taught to look after your family and family's everything and actually i've realized as an adult that you can't help someone that doesn't want to be helped and and actually just because they are family it doesn't mean that you have to accept people's toxicity in your life but he does leave quite a mark on my life you know where i feel sort of i do worry about abandonment from men and i'm constantly waiting for men's mood to change so i'm very very polite to men because I know how quickly his mood can change or did change so it it does I think a lot of us don't recognize you know we say oh I had a great childhood and I used to say that all the time like I had a normal happy childhood and my therapist for a while she's like I would say you'd have a difficult one I was like no I don't know what you're on about but then when I wrote the book and I started really looking into narcissism and narcissistic parents and empathy as a trauma response and hypervigilance and i was just thinking this is my childhood it really helped actually to name it for what he was and obviously i I would never recommend trying to diagnose someone from the internet or anything like that but just reflecting on lots of behaviors that experts were talking about I, i could name in my childhood and it really helped me to realize that actually it wasn't my fault like i couldn't have been a better daughter because who i was actually wouldn't have impacted it because it was him and his issues
0: before we discuss the book in great detail during this period of time when you were age 23 you experienced a miscarriage now you can talk about this in as much or as little detail as you want but do you feel comfortable talking about that and maybe how big a stigma it is as well amongst women
1: yeah so my I'd actually been with my ex for a good I think about four and a half years and then we separated and and I decided to do, well, this is before the book came out, but the whole eat, pray, love thing. So I was, I bought a three-month ticket around Southeast Asia and off I went. But in the months before, I had started dating a man and again, unfortunately, turned out to be highly, highly abusive. And I fell pregnant, but I didn't know I was pregnant until I had the miscarriage. I'd gone up to London for a weekend on my own. I don't even know what hospital I presented to. I don't remember much of it, just being in a lot of pain. And the nurses just sort of pat me on the shoulder and gave me some leaflets and then off I went. And it was six weeks before I went away and I was due to go away. And my mum, you know, she wanted to grieve and, and I just wasn't interested. I was like, no, as I've got too much, I've only got six weeks to go. I've got too much to think about and, People said, oh, maybe you shouldn't go. And I was like, no, I've already spent money. You know, I'm hitting every destination at the right weather time. I was like, no, I'm going to go. So I just stuck it in a box and I just didn't deal with it. And then I, I, I think I just knew I just needed time to process it in my own way. So actually, as much as I do have really fond memories of that trip in lots of different ways, and that was my first solo backpacking adventure, I also remember a lot of tears and a lot of grief coming out. And it was really hard because... I never told him because he just stopped answering my calls. So there was nobody to even comfort me through it. So I think there is a real shame and stigma to it. You know, the fact that we even say, whether you're a single woman or a couple, you know, they say, oh, well, don't really announce your pregnancy until a three month scan. And I just think, in general, in society, certainly in Britain, I think we're so fucked up with how we deal with grief because we just don't. And, you know, you look at more like eastern cultures are more about celebrating and collective grief whereas we're like all do it in private behind closed doors and you know I think actually that made everything worse for me because I just had no one to talk to about this child and I didn't really know how I felt about it because I was like oh how can you miss something that didn't even know about and it was very confusing and i think the fact that we don't normalize conversations around that grief you know and thinking "Oh, do i even have a right to grieve because you know technically it wasn't x amount of weeks so therefore it wasn't really a baby and and you get all these conflicting emotions and i think to do all that and to have to do it in silence because society says for some reason in britain that collective and overt grief is not acceptable is really really archaic and I I sort of wish that we'd get better with grief and being open about it and discussing and normalizing it because it's a terrible grief anyway grief always is but to feel forced to deal with it alone feels like a an extra knife in the heart at one of your loneliest and darkest times so I really think there is such a stigma and and I really wish there wasn't because I, I feel like I probably have never dealt with it probably because there was nobody to really say I'm sorry for your loss yeah it's a really complicated issue but I think we need to change it and quickly
0: thank you so much for your honesty there Tony and I'm learning more and more how common miscarriages are with women too so I think it's really educational for the listeners as well During this period, you also tried to take your own life several times. On one of your suicide attempts, whilst you were living in Australia, you collapsed on a beach, you ended up on a Bondi Beach rescue TV programme, I believe, and then you were diagnosed with autoimmune hepatitis, which just seems like one whirlwind event after another. There was another suicide attempt you had, but you were saved by a wonderful woman called Bastien. Can you tell me about both these suicide attempts, if you can, and, and how you felt during those periods?
1: I think for me... There was a lot going on in my life at that time. You know, I'd moved to Australia. I just was recovering from a nervous breakdown and I'd bought a one-way ticket to Sydney and off I went, thinking it's gonna, you know, give me the life I want. And within about five or six weeks, I became really unwell. And I thought, oh, it's food poisoning or something. And then I remember waking up one morning and my eyes were jaundice yellow. And I thought, oh, that's obviously a side effect from the medication I've taken. And the doctor said, oh, we'll just get some bloods and what have you and see how you are. And then they came back and and your baseline liver function test should be about 30. And mine came back at 1,432. And by that point, I was banana yellow. And it's incredible. You know, we talk about the liver, like, particularly in the context of drinking in the UK. But it's not until it starts failing that you realise just how much it controls in the body. And, and I was incredibly weak and I couldn't stomach any food. So I... I dropped a dress size in in about three weeks. And so actually I'd gone there, within five, six weeks I'd become unwell. Went through all these scans and tests and everything and they kept saying, oh, it's your gallbladder and then it's your liver and back and forth. And it was in the, it's about five months later and my friend had also moved out to Australia and she'd come down to visit me and we went for a walk. And I just remember, it was summer, so that's why they were filming Bondi Rescue and I remember feeling awful after the walk, like very, very weak, and I just went to the loo with her, and as we were coming back, I just collapsed outside, and it's so bizarre because to see yourself like on t v when you don't remember it, and I was so floppy and you could like even I was very, very tanned, and yet my face was still ashen gray, I was so unwell, and I think. I just couldn't believe it i couldn't believe how unwell i'd become and you know i saw australia as a light at the end of a very dark tunnel and i did all that you know and then i flew home as an emergency when they said it's your gallbladder you need surgery and i was like i can't afford surgery here i'm going to go back home and that's when they floored me with a diagnosis of autoimmune hepatitis and i was just screaming going no no i've had all my tests and that's when they explained and and i didn't know that hepatitis is just the word for an inflamed liver and essentially it's not infectious and all it means is that my liver is constantly fighting an invisible infection so it constantly thinks it's unwell so it's working even when it shouldn't and as i said i lost so much weight because i just couldn't stomach any food i had to have a liver biopsy and i got pumped full of steroids so then i blew up two dress sizes so my body went through absolute hell in the matter of months But I came under control and thankfully got the all clear to go back to Australia to do my visa. And I remember I did my rural work, which you have to do in your first year of an Australian visa. And I moved back to Bondi. And it felt prophetic to be back and i felt like it was home to be back in bondi like this place that had stole my soul and i really felt it was home i still call it home now but then it's one of those things where you think you're okay and then actually several months of trauma and pain and everything all comes out and i remember just thinking that's it i'm i just don't want to be here anymore and i thought i want to end my life at bondi like the place that I call home it felt fitting and, and I'm not saying that's right or wrong but I went and I think I was just exhausted with everything and I remember just filling my coat with rocks and just walking into the sea but I couldn't fight the waves and I just lay there in wet clothes on the shoreline and I the next day I just went back to the hostel and just carried on as though nothing was wrong and I'd met this woman a week before at a Bondi Beach event uh, around mental health and she's my kind of woman she was there with glitter all over her face mermaid onesie I was like yes love you and I went back to this event probably I think it was maybe about five days later and within that time I'd also considered going into hospital because I was so unwell and she just saw me and she went Oh, she said you were here last week so how are you and i just got really tearful and i said oh i almost went into hospital and that was the friday at sunrise and she gave me a mobile phone number she spoke to me in the friday evening she said come over to my apartment sunday she's like i, I can get you access to a psychologist and whatever you need i went over on sunday she gave me a spare key and i moved in with her on monday and i just lived on a sofa for two weeks rent free and within that time I got a job and an apartment. So it's very much, it does show that, you know, when you are right on that edge and you think you've got nothing to live for, it can quickly switch around if you can keep going a little bit longer. But Bastion was just incredible and, and we're still friends now and I, and I love her to bits and I think you know she helped me have one of the best and most healthy years of my life so you know i'll always have an affinity and I'll, to australia i will i'll always call bondi beach home i have lots of friends there now so yeah i think it was a lot to deal with it was very difficult to face my mortality with my liver at 26 to be told you know you're at higher risk of liver cancer you might need transplant you might have to stay on medication for life when i'm not a big drinker never have been never taken recreational drugs i was like oh this just doesn't seem fair and all the consultant would say was like one day your genes just mutated and that was it you know and that was very hard to grasp but when i moved back to australia as i said i was quite large because of the drugs and all my muscles had wasted but i started running and i i ran the weight off and so for me australia has absolutely part of my soul still there it was a lot to go through but i had the good people around me and yeah, I think it was just one of those bittersweet times in life.
0: So Bastien, if you're listening, I hope she's giving you a big shout out there. Tony, we're going to talk about this much more in depth later in the pod, but for context for the listeners, before you were raped by your former boss, you were also raped two previous times during this period of your life, including once by an Australian man when you lived out there. You added this into the book to give context to the readers. So. Can you tell me about these events in as little detail as you want, and how they affected your world view?
1: Yeah, it was really interesting actually because I had no intention of writing about them at all. But The more I wrote about the book, the more I researched, the, the more I realised that actually it really is the norm for so many of us to have multiple sexual, you know, experiences of sexual harassment, assault, rape, and actually for us not to name them for what they are because it gets so normalised so for me my first rape was when i was in my teens by a military man who was tenuously known to me and i just normalized it i was just like oh that's just a bad experience you know because i was not wise sexually i was young i you know you can't compare experiences at that point unless they're overtly violent or something happens And so you think that is this the norm, even though you have that sort of gnawing feeling in the pit of your stomach that you know it's not right. And I think again, for me, my memory is just sporadic of that. And yet at the same time, even now at 34, there's a sexual act I still can't perform because of that night. But I didn't call it rape for years and years and years, and and not even to myself. And it wasn't until I was about 25 before i moved out to australia and i'd become friends with a a woman at work and one day out of left field she just dropped his name into the conversation as a family friend and then it all came out that he'd avoided several rape charges and that there was a clear pattern to his behavior and there were several women and and i found out that he'd been dishonorably discharged but not because of the rape complaints but because of a criminal conviction for fraud and i never reported it at the time and when i found out about the other women i felt horrifically guilty and i think that guilt has haunted me ever since for not reporting because i kept thinking could i have been that one last complaint that tipped them over the edge because there were complainants after me there were more victims after me and that has felt horrible and i think you know with the man in australia it was for me, you know, I think it's great that we're now starting to talk about coercion in legal parameters, which is far different than manipulation. You know, unfortunately, we all lie and manipulate through our lives for the good and bad, you know, but we're talking about extremes of behaviour. And I think for me, because I was always on tender hooks with my dad as a child, I'm very acutely aware of men and how they hold themselves. And you know, he was a very dominant man. And I remember thinking, you know, I was there to spend the weekend with him. And, you know, we were in a city. So there was lots of place, you know, there was people I could have gone to, instead of going back to his place. But I thought I've got all my stuff there. And I just knew that it's something so weird to describe when you just know that there's potential for violence. And, And I can't really describe that feeling. But as soon as i met him for that weekend i knew something was off like the red flags like the gut instinct it was screaming at me and i was thinking no he looks nice you know he's saying the right things but it just didn't feel right and i remember thinking i'm going to have to give up my body here i'm going to have to let him sleep with me because i genuinely fear his reaction if i don't and i think for me it was again sort of reading into narcissism and and coercion it was very powerful to actually name it for what it was when for years again i was like it's just a bad experience i sort of think that's one of the reasons why we keep coming into this men versus women discussion around rape you know and people sort of saying oh well women can complain about rape about the most minimal of circumstances but I think it's very very difficult to try and explain that level of fear and now as I was an adult then but as an even more informed adult the hindsight bias in me would go you could have just bought new things like you could have just told someone in the bar you didn't feel comfortable you know and it's all these things that you think I could have done that or I should have done that and I hate the word should I think should is one of the worst words in the English language At the time, and I I sort of say it in the book, in, in terms of trauma in general, I think it's very difficult not to judge your enduring trauma with hindsight. But you really can't. Like You did what you needed to to survive. But I think, yeah, for me, I didn't feel I could write the book without actually saying... These experiences shape me and actually multiple rapes and assaults happen to a great number of women. And unfortunately, we're not really discussing that. I think we need to. So for me, it was more kind of giving context to say, actually, this happened to me and I didn't name it for, for many years. But that doesn't stop it being rape.
0: Let's talk about the book now, Tony, because it's just an incredible piece of work. Tell me why you wanted to write it, obviously what you've already discussed, but other reasons if you want to, what you wanted to achieve with it, and then maybe set the scene for me and the listeners about the stats behind the relatively, well, I say relatively, the definitely few number of rape convictions in the UK, because it is just startlingly low.
1: Yeah, so for me, when i really upset, when I'm really angry, when I'm really passionate, I write That is my coping mechanism and when I had finished going through the police investigation I wanted to write a piece for the local senior leaders and officers that I knew to say this is the issues that we face organisationally and within the wider criminal justice system. And I thought I would write a piece that's maybe five, 6,000 words long. I can't do short form writing for shit. Like everybody knows that from me now. And it just kept growing. And I kept thinking, but then the list links to this and this links to this. And you can't talk about that without bringing this in. And... I just kept writing and writing and researching and then anyone who's ever come across academic papers knows it's a wormhole. You go into one paper and before you know it, you've got another 13 papers that you need to read out of it. But as I said, it it was a thirst for learning and, and understanding what I'd been through or trying to understand and trying to understand why so many and society in general don't seem to understand the prevalence of sexual violence why we don't discuss it, why we do dismiss it when people do. But it was mainly the more I wrote and I would share on Twitter, I'm like, oh, you know, I've hit 20,000 words today. And then it was like, oh my God, you know, I've hit 30. I think there was a six-week period over Christmas and New Year where I wrote 30,000 words just in six weeks. And the more I kind of wrote, the more people said that they were interested in reading it, you know, reading about a victim's, experience. And so I never really thought of it as a book, which is why I said earlier that it sort of surprises me I have written a book. I always knew I would write a book in my life. I I know that that was going to happen at some point, but I didn't expect my first one to be about the criminal justice system. And I think it was the most cathartic, difficult and therapeutic Thing I could have ever done with my trauma. But I suppose now that I've written it, all I would really hope for is that it just gets people to see things from a different perspective. It doesn't mean that necessarily that they can change things. But I certainly think in policing, there is a natural instinct to defend themselves against attack because unfortunately there is quite an anti-police narrative in general particularly at the moment that does sort of attack the organization and quite rightly we do need to challenge the organization and its practices i I, i'm never one for blanket support you know the organization is not faultless but i think a lot of police say oh well but we've got this within legal parameters or this and i'm going i'm not doubting that but this is how those practices can be perceived by victims and that's all i'm asking you to consider like i fully understand your need for neutrality and all that kind of stuff but i'm just saying but this is how it feels to go through and i think that's really important because actually what you're doing being a victim of sexual violence is all about feeling and then you come into contact with this very unfeeling organization and and that's not to say that the people within it can't be compassionate empathetic but obviously the law means that they are unfeeling and they're factual so you have this real clash of C's as it were and I just wanted to be able to kind of be that bridge a little bit to say I fully understand where you're coming from but please understand how it can be received as a victim, how it can come across because we've got issues you know people say you should report you know anytime people and i see it a lot you know regardless of the news this week there will be women you know and men that will openly discuss on social media their experiences but they haven't reported to police and it'll be like well why didn't you report you know if it really happened you'd report and there's such this ignorance around what it means the emotional labor it takes to report when it doesn't get rewarded because we're talking about a 1.4% conviction rate which has been dropping since around 2016 with the CPS but what we're also seeing here is that 1.4% is against an estimated 15% of reported rapes. So that 1.4% is only against the 15 that get reported. So actually, if you're talking about putting that 1.4% against the 100% that we would know about if everyone did report, it's negligible. And I think we are in this very difficult position of being very vocal about this 1.4% conviction rate, as we rightly should. You know, we need to be challenged as a society to discuss this because it takes a cross section of society to make it work but I think at the same time we risk putting victims off by saying you've got a 1.4% chance. And I'm not sure what that balance is to that conversation because we do need to be open and transparent, but I think we need some very honest conversations that at the moment it becomes very much us and them. Instead of actually discussions, it just becomes who can shout the loudest.
0: Before we talk about the night you were raped and sexually assaulted, Tony, Can you set the scene for the listeners and who your boss was, who we'll call Lucifer, as you did in the book, and the woman who conspired with him to abuse you that night, who you called Maleficent in the book, how your relationship went from maybe a purely professional one to something more than that, and then when the red flags began?
1: Yeah, so Lucifer was my team leader and I didn't really have much to do with him on a day-to-day basis. He wasn't my direct boss within the team unless his secretary was away and I was sharing his work. So I'd probably been working at the law firm for about 15 months and we'd never really shared much more of a how was your weekend conversation. Same with her, again, she was a solicitor in our team and they sort of just kept themselves to themselves nice enough to have a chat and that was it. But then it sort of changed after about 15 months and there was about 40 of us out and you imagine a law firm, like 40 of us out on a night out. You know, everybody was in a really good mood, like we were celebrating like birthdays and and all sorts and it was a fantastic night. And then Lucifer, you know, I was in that lovely, giggly, tipsy phase where that's my extension of me. Like, when I get tipsy, everyone gets a hug. Like, I'm just like, I love you, you know, I'm that annoying, affectionate, drunk. Uh, everyone gets hugs. And he walked me back to the train station and I would had a really difficult week, so I really needed to blow off steamer that night. And he just pulled me in for this tight, caring hug and I just felt in that moment just cared for and that's what i needed and when we were waiting on the platform he kissed me and and i knew he was married and and i kissed him back and you know i felt awful for it afterwards and i thought on the monday we'd come in and maybe talk about it and we just never spoke about it and really it was that night where my entire relationship with him changed you know, we actually then had a more friendly and conversational relationship in work and the sort of very subtle gaslighting would begin and, you know, it'd be really flirty one day and then he would be cold as hell the next day. And I was constantly back and forth, not really knowing his moods. And because of that, I never really knew what person I was going to be because I didn't know what mood he was going to be and what person he was going to be either. So sometimes the team would be full of banter, you know, there'd be jokes rolling around. And other times he would just be stone cold silent and I would feel punished for being who I was and it was very much this back and forth kind of behaviour on his terms you know he'd flirt and be happy when he wanted to and then he'd stop when he wanted to and again it's one of those patterns that hindsight affords you but you can't appreciate your going through at the time and I didn't really have a relationship with her it was again just that how was your weekend conversation and We all sort of in the office commented that she was a bit odd, but we didn't really know what that oddness was. We all just sort of felt it, but they were nice enough. And so we'd had this pattern, you know, for months of we'd go out for a night out with work and he'd be there. And as soon as we were out, he would buy me a drink. He'd start flirting, start making comments about me, about my body and saying how much he likes having me in the office and, and all this kind of stuff, which I was flattered, but I was like, you're married and I hold my hands up to the part I played at the beginning um, and I think that's one of the biggest reasons I struggled so much feeling like I deserved it but yeah it was just kind of this back and forth yo-yoing for months and and then the night of our staff Christmas party I say I got very very drunk I don't get drunk despite my liver I can handle a loft to drink and and I still remember that night we went to this train station but I can't remember that night, and I saw how cold and cruel he was and and usually he just made me cry. He just wouldn't speak to me if I spoke to a colleague that happened to be stood next to him, he'd walk away from me, and I couldn't understand what I'd done and I just remember being in tears, and then my colleagues came out, and they knew of my relationship with him or what had happened, and they were like, "Oh, he's got you know just ignore him, ignore his behaviors we all know what he's like and I thought. I don't know what he's like, what are you you on about? And that was the first time I was really hearing that he had a reputation. And that's really the last significant chunk of memory that I have up until we had all been in this venue, which our law firm had paid for for the evening. And all of a sudden, I remember being in another venue and it was Lucifer, Maleficent and, and I. And I remember just looking at her and she kissed him, he kissed me, and then she kissed me and i don't remember feeling anything i remember that but i don't remember feeling anything about it and my last proper glimpse of a memory is remembering saying yes to getting in a taxi to go back to the airbnb i was staying in then that's it sometimes i think as I, as i've written in the book you know a few tiny lines completely changed my life like a night i don't remember changed my whole life so sometimes i really struggle with how i feel now doesn't feel proportionate to what happened it does but i think it's very important to discuss those kind of escalating abusive behaviors which we don't really talk about like the coercion gaslighting manipulation and yeah i just kind of woke up the next day and they'd gone and My clothes were everywhere and I knew what had happened. And then I just thought, I don't even think I really actively thought. I just collected my shit and I left. Because my life had just taught me to just get on. Just get on with life. Don't think about it. It didn't even enter my head to say, Oh, that was rape. I was raped. Like I was sexually assaulted and, you know, unfortunately, I didn't remember anything about that night and I just carried on. It felt awful and I knew it felt wrong, but I couldn't name it. That didn't feel good. I don't know what happened. I just knew in the piss of my stomach, but I went into total and I was like, I'm just going to carry on. Just put your makeup on, get dressed, go back out into the world. And I think for me, it was just, yeah, I didn't even consciously think it was just get up, go out into the world, put a smile on your face and pretend you're fine.
0: In the initial weeks after you were raped, your mind began to be so conflicted and traumatised that you even felt the need at one point to apologise to your own rapist in some way for your supposed actions, in inverted commas, that night. You wrote, quote, My rape wasn't violent. I wasn't beaten. I didn't fight them off. I seemed compliant in every way from what others have told me. I have nothing to complain about. I can't call it sexual assault and rape. It was my own fault. It was inevitable and I deserved it. How did you feel in that period? And maybe tell me how your mental health deteriorated during those weeks and months and how hard was that to write?
1: Yeah, I think it's not actually until you say it, I I can sort of feel my voice shaking a little bit because I think that one paragraph sort of sums up how... I felt and sometimes how I do still feel about it because for me it wasn't the trauma of that night that affected me the most it was finding out his behaviors of what he did you know so it wasn't until I went back into the office in the following week that my colleague said he literally had his hands up like we were all watching him kiss you he had his hands up your skirt between your legs in front of everyone like we pulled him off more than once told him to leave you alone and he just called you crazy and it was in my head just i couldn't wrap my head around that because i was like no you know he he cares about me i disclose that i have depression and anxiety and he seemed really caring initially before he used it against me in my appraisal like i couldn't wrap my head around it i was like i don't understand what you're saying i don't understand how i don't remember this you know i have annoyingly good memory as much as my mum detests it in me and I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I couldn't remember it and I'd never been that drunk like I didn't understand it and to then as I said hear other people and say no we pulled him off you and he just laughed and called you crazy and it made no sense and I think that was devastating for me when The whole office was talking about us, but nobody in our team really knew. So actually I had to do the opposite. I had to be the life and soul of the party. I became super cheerful, you know, laughing at all these shit jokes and everyone was literally staring at me and, you know, they said, oh, you know, I remember one colleague said, oh, he's a sexual predator. And I was like, no, I was like, I don't know what you're on about. You know, he's not. And she said, oh, I, you know, I called him the Harvey Weinstein of the firm and he just laughed. And it just didn't, it felt like they were talking about a different person. And so I think, you know, when you read that quote out from my book, it's it does feel like that. It does still often feel my fault because we are sold this narrative of rape is a stranger and it's always an attack. And I know that we'll talk about it later, but I think, unfortunately, when your experience of sexual assault and rape doesn't then compare to that, anything less than that is seen as, quote, not that bad. As women, it's like, oh, well, there was no bruises or whatever it is, or whatever you justify and say, it didn't have this or it didn't have this, you then minimise your own experience. And it's very difficult to hear that I was compliant, you know, I wasn't pushing them off because I am a fighter and, and my trauma response for other people's trauma is absolutely to fight. I've done it many times when I've come across incidents that I've needed to sort. So everything about it felt like it happened to someone else and that they were describing another man and woman, not them. And I worried that I would get them into trouble if people were talking about us. I was so conflicted and I just had no idea and it felt like every day I kinda of went in and got hit by another bumper car and was just in a tailspin. And every day I just I just went into work just dreading it and having to work with him.
0: After you were raped by him, you became pregnant and you tragically miscarried again. Now, this trauma you're still processing, so we're not going to explore it too much, but I thought I'd add it in as context for the listeners. But at this point, you also tried to take your own life again. And on the spectrum of seriousness of the attempts that you've done, Tony, this was one of the worst, as you could have easily choked on your own vomit. But you write it in quite a surprisingly matter-of-fact way in the book. How did you feel waking up that morning given what was going through your head in that moment before and after it.
1: I think, um, for me, it was one of those where in the weeks afterwards, I was constantly feeling sick. I couldn't stomach much food. I was absolute wreck. But I think again, there was something in the back of my mind, just going, this is more than stress Like you're pregnant. And I didn't want to take the test because I didn't want to be proven right. So there was a hesitancy to do that and I didn't feel like I could tell anyone because everyone was talking about me and everyone had an opinion on my trauma, like, oh, you should go to the police or don't go to the police, I like, just forget it. Everyone had an opinion and I couldn't say anything because in the private sector, there is a two year employment rule, meaning that even if you pass your probation, an employer can fire you for minimal reasons and you have no recourse to come back for and, and sue them for unfair dismissal. And when they sexually assaulted and raped me, I was three weeks shy of that two years. And I found out I was pregnant and and I knew, I just knew I was going to keep her instantly. And, and I don't expect other people to understand that. But maybe that was because I'd, I'd lost my previous one. But I wasn't thinking, oh, you know, my baby's a product to rape it. It's like, I want my baby. And I told him, I think because... I was still hoping he was the nice man that I thought and he would care and when I told him his very first words were my career and marriage have fucked in that order which I was like well that says everything and I'd found out in the summer that Lucifer and Melissa had had an affair and it had all come out with their husbands and wives and and I just realised that I was in this game that I had no idea I was part of. And so when I told him, I I was expecting, I suppose, that glimmer of sincerity, which I knew he had in him, and he didn't. It was just, I think it would be better if you were to get rid of it. And I just like, oh, I need time to think, and I didn't. I just knew I wanted her. And then when I started to have the pain, I just knew, I knew what was happening. And it was a Friday night, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to A&E, because it's going to be drunk people and and I thought you know unless something really overtly goes wrong I'm just going to stay at home and I I just stayed at home and I lost her and I told no one and I went back to work a few days later I took one day off work and I just said you know I didn't want to see him when I first went back and then I was in a very blunt matter of fact way sort of called my solicitors and partners into an office one by one and said look I'm gonna Look and feel like shit for a while. I said, I was pregnant, now I'm not. Like, I couldn't say the word miscarriage. I was like, I was pregnant, now I'm not. And I showed no emotion about it whatsoever. And they were lovely. Whereas when I'd called him to say I'd had a miscarriage, he feigned sincerity. He's like, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. But yes, I'm glad I'm off the hook. And I think I never really got that sincerity from anyone. It was very much those I did tell said, Well, at least you're not pregnant with his kid. And I don't know if she was a girl. I never I never met her on scan or anything, but I felt like she was and I and I think of her as my little girl. But I think it comes back to what we were saying earlier about the stigma. It, it was just I felt so conflicted in wanting her and I felt disgusted in falling pregnant, thinking, Oh, I must have liked it, and then I thought, well, a real victim wouldn't want to keep their rapist baby so maybe it wasn't really rape maybe I'm just overreacting and then when I lost her it was just didn't even think about it. it's like just back to work crack on just ignore it and I think you know I'm still struggling with that sort of unheard grief years later because of it because of I was hoping I suppose that he would just comfort me and and say I'm sorry and and I knew that he wouldn't do that so it was an exceptionally lonely time to go through all that and I think because so much of my trauma had been up for grabs in terms of office gossip that she felt like something I wanted to keep to myself but then nothing happened at work I can't talk about the legal process but work didn't really do anything and and I just remember coming down from a meeting where they said they weren't really going to do anything and I was just hysterical And, and once I calmed myself down I looked at my computer clock and I just looked at the time, I thought, I've got 90 minutes to clear my desk, go home and kill myself. It was very matter-of-fact. It was just come down from the office and I started clearing my emails, shredding paperwork, tidying my desk, and and that was it. And I suppose I do talk about it in a matter-of-fact way in the sense of I was on autopilot for everything. Like I, There was so much trauma to deal with and survive having to see them every day that... I just got up and I went to work I just woke up the next morning and I thought I I I didn't even think about how I was feeling I just thought I just need to go to work and so I just got dressed and I went into work and then collapsed into the work toilets and got taken to A&E and I say that that's the best and worst day because unlike the firm who had dismissed and sort of minimised what I went through I remember that the mental health team came in and I'd Obviously, when I was incoherent with the drugs from the overdose, had obviously explained why I tried to kill myself. And they came back and said, that's sexual assault and rape and we want to call the police. And that was the first time that independent people had actually named it for what it was, which was what I needed, but I came out of hospital feeling worse than I went in. So there was lots to it, but I think having them label it helped me.
0: Before we talk about... When you reported it and that official process, you came close to taking your own life again when you saw Lucifer at a train station shortly after the grievance process failed. You say in the book that after that grievance process failed, it confirmed what you thought you were at that time, which was a whore and a victim and nothing more than that. If you could say, can you tell me about that event and your mental health state here?
1: Yeah, so when the grievance process failed, I remember just going into the meeting before I was going to be told. And I just said to my friend who came in with me, I said, as long as I don't go into that meeting, they don't get to tell me if I'm a victim or a whore. And when they said they weren't going to do anything, I was like, so they've basically confirmed I'm a whore and it was my own fault. And he resigned and he left and he didn't come back into the office. And I remember being at train station. He doesn't live locally. And I just looked up and he was there and he walked past me and he shot me this look of such hatred that i recognized that i'd seen many times in my father growing up and i knew he was about to be on the same train as me for several hours and very quickly i realized what he was going to do and he was going to be on the train and i remember that this tunnel announcement shot through my thoughts and it said you know something along the lines next train is a non-stop and i very quickly even before i even realized what i was doing wrote a very small note on my iPhone, left my iPhone unlocked, put my bags at the side of a bench and just started walking towards the edge of the platform. I just thought I can't do it. I can't, I can't be in this world anymore. I don't, I want it all to be over. And I remember standing over the yellow line and I realised just how many people were around me and I couldn't. And then I just sat there in quiet tears because I felt so trapped that I was going to be on this train with him and that, I couldn't even end my life because I didn't want to be a burden to other people. It it was a very, yeah, very isolating mental space to be in.
0: Let's talk about how you reported the rape now. So you had to listen to some pretty horrific stigmatising things when you were reporting it, when you came into a police station that you eventually reported it to. The comments by one of the police sergeants in that station and the detective constable as well just shocked me to my core when I read them if you felt comfortable can you tell the listeners maybe some of what they said that you feel comfortable sharing and then set the scene about how that first attempt at reporting it transpired
1: I didn't report it until May because I think in my head I was expecting the grievous process at work to do the right thing and to give him some punishment and when they didn't and when I saw him at the train station I thought I have to do something myself even though I didn't necessarily feel ready and even when I reported I couldn't call it rape I said it was sexual assault I walked in and said I need to report sexual assault and I mentioned nothing about Maleficent nothing about the months of abuse beforehand and he just said well if you said yes to going home with him there's not much that we can do but let me speak to a colleague and I remember he left and I just sat in this really bare old decaying room and I was just in tears because I thought that's not what I was expecting. And I almost walked out, but I was going, no, no, like you've come this far, just wait. And then unfortunately, his colleague was quite dismissive as well. And and I remember leaving the station thinking, I feel like I've just given them a shopping list. And I left without calling it sexual assault. And the detective constable will call me back a couple of days later. And when I'm really vulnerable or feeling very vulnerable or feeling very traumatized, I become very very animated, I become very humorous and and cheerful. So I was back in that sort of emotionally armored state and he said what do you want to do about your report and I was like oh you know nothing nothing I just wanted to put his name on record and he said well it's just as well because the only evidence you had talking about my baby was gone so there was nothing that they could do And I was like, Oh yeah, that's fine. It's fine. And I put the phone down and I managed to walk all the way home and I just broke down in tears because he just called my tiny little human dead clinical evidence and, and I was just, yeah, I was heartbroken. And so nothing happened and they closed the file and it wasn't what I was expecting, you know, I grew up being told that, you know, if you're lost on the streets, you go and see a police officer. And I appreciate that that can't really happen now because of, you know, we've lost so many police with cuts and everything, but I was taught, you know, that they will protect you in society. And then I just walked in and three of them in a matter of days, are basically said, you've complained about nothing. And it flipped my world around because that wasn't the police I grew up believing in. So it was very difficult in that sense.
0: Your case was reopened after you presented your story to a group of senior leaders in the police and through the help of a few of those leaders who supported you. However, throughout that process, you say in the book how you were treated as an informed stoic professional instead of a lay member of the public or traumatised victim or victim survivor. At one point, your sexual offences liaison officer or solo officer said in your pre-interview assessment, quote, you'll be judged and and treated as a suspect throughout the investigation, end quote. How did hearing that so early on into the investigation make you feel? And why was that such a wrong approach by that person to do?
1: I don't think I fully comprehended it, actually. I write it in the book that it's not until I wrote it in the book that I realised just how much anger I held for that one comment. And I remember just she said it at the end of my pre-interview assessment where they basically make sure you're fit, to go ahead with the video interview and I just physically shrug my shoulders and I went work I spent months judging me what's a few more and I get really pissed off at my naivety about that now and I get really angry I can't even comprehend how she would think that that's an appropriate thing to say there's a wealth of difference in preparedness and comments like that which is just seeping in victim blaming and even if that was the view of the police as in they have to investigate and see things impartially. it's not an appropriate comment to say when you need that victim survivor to feel trusting and confident enough to to talk to you so I think for me it was because I sort of came in in a roundabout route to have my investigation reopened I came in because my route was a men's mental health specialist and and that's what got me to present to the senior leadership team as well as to offer feedback about my experience of reporting and it was after that presentation that they recognised that they'd like to review my file for potential learning opportunities and maybe reopen it if independently it was seen necessary which it was which is why I had the video interview so for me it was another reminder that I didn't matter, that what I'd been through didn't matter and it wasn't that serious and I was complaining about nothing. So it felt very, very jarring and I couldn't really comprehend it at the time of just how significant that was to hear.
0: During the process, your officer in charge, or OIC, treated you extremely badly, often dismissively and basically played a big part in re-traumatising you through this process, including in some ways, breaking the friendship you have with one of your close friends, Laura. The lead detective inspector for your investigation also followed you on Twitter, which highly triggered you and is just a highly inappropriate thing to do, full stop. We don't want to put off potential victims reporting here, but if you could just tell the listeners about some other examples of that behaviour and how that affected your mental health.
1: I think for me the trauma of the investigation and my OIC just came down to a lack of dignity in communication. It was never about whether I felt believed or not, but the lack of communication and and seeing me as this professional that understood the pressures of police so therefore they could perhaps not explain everything that they would to a victim from a member of public who's not necessarily informed of police practices and so that's not to say that how i was treated is how a member of public's going to be treated i think you know both a blessing and a curse because i did come in as a men's mental health specialist i i have to wear two hats and unfortunately they sort of picked my professional hat and therefore perhaps said things that they wouldn't necessarily say to general members of the public So for me and and that's why I'm a big advocate now of trying to say that you can remain legally impartial but still offer compassionate and dignified communication and it was lots of texts and no calls and it was arranging to speak to witnesses and then not speaking to them and not apologising and it felt very dismissive when I'd already been dismissed already so it just further compounded it.
0: After some time and with you experiencing more trauma breakdowns in relation to the investigation, you eventually turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism as well. You were then told your case was closed and had a no further action or NFA decision letter given to you. How did that feel in the build up to it and the moment itself?
1: I think despite, you know, the hope of some people, I always expected it to be a not further action and I was coping quite well with the first sort of three months of the investigation. And then I just had a week of lots of really bad triggers through my OIC, through the DI following me on Twitter, all these kind of like little things that built up. And by that point, I realized that my hair was falling out. I had like a mouthful of ulcers and I would started drinking. And by the time I'd stopped, I'd been drinking every day for 56 days. For someone that doesn't drink for months at a time, it completely changed my relationship. So I think, you know, when I knew the decision was coming, I was so traumatized by the investigation itself that when I knew I had that meeting to receive the decision, I genuinely thought there was a risk that I would turn up and be arrested for wasting police time because that's how I felt through the investigation. So it was a very quick meeting, like eight or nine minutes where my officer met with me with my independent sexual violence advisor who are incredible workers. And she just gave me this envelope and she said, unfortunately, and as soon as she said that, I knew exactly what was coming and I just wanted her to leave. I didn't want her to say anything. I was just like, just give me my decision and let me leave. And then she just turned around and said, you know, my officers work so hard on cases like these. It's really demoralizing. And, and I just thought she left and I said to my ISFA, I was like, they couldn't as a service even let me have eight minutes to just be a victim without asking me or expecting me to put police well-being before my own and it just felt like that final nail in the coffin to really be like hammering home that I didn't matter and my experience didn't matter and it wasn't that big of a deal so I think I always knew the decision was likely to be an NFA but again the way it was delivered just added that extra bit of pain that I didn't need
0: In the book you talk about this idea of real rape in inverted commas and the ideal victim in inverted commas as well and the stereotypes and rape myths they both perpetuate tony tell the listeners what they are and so you can educate them maybe some stats around that and real rape in rape cases and how that perhaps damages or limits the conversation
1: so in sort of general understanding in the academic world and those who work in sexual violence that the real rape sort of narrative is that stranger that comes out of the bushes at night and attacks you and beats you and you've got lots of contusions and bruises and what have you when actually the majority the overwhelming majority of studies into rape demonstrate clearly that most of our rapes are acquaintance rapes however tenuously that connection is it's acquaintance and depending on studies it can be anywhere between 70 you know 65 70% all the way up to 90 95% but we're still seeing that the overwhelming majority are acquaintance rape and within that that actually very few of those victims will have physical evidence be it bruises anything like that and so for me, I think it really limits the conversation, as as we were saying earlier, because both for victims and for those trying to decide on guilt of people, because you get put into this victim hierarchy that if your experience isn't that stranger that comes out and beats you senseless, that anything else is seen as not that bad by society, by the judicial system. So it gets, that is your A-star comparison to go for. And similarly, then you've got what they call is the ideal victim. And, and so that would be someone who you know, looks after their safety, doesn't make themselves purposely vulnerable through drinking or perhaps risky behaviours. And so, again, even as we're seeing this week in the news, despite all the risk mitigation, so walking home with other people calling partners on the phone, whatever it may be, that you can still be raped and unfortunately once you then start going down those again that victim hierarchy of ideal victim it's like that's your a-star victim you know someone that doesn't know the rapist that did everything they should you know was wearing sweatpants was walking in well-lit streets and then when you start going down and saying well she was on a night out she was drunk she was wearing a short skirt so all these things slowly start even subconsciously start taking that victim away from that quote ideal victim so you've got these real clashes of what we're told is a rape victim and what we're told is real rape and then anything that falls below those standards in terms of this sort of stupid hierarchies that we've somehow created you then fall down and that's when you start seeing that people will be less forgiving or less sympathetic to victims going oh well you know you were very drunk and Therefore they took advantage of you. And it's like, well, I've been extremely drunk around lots of men before, and I've had a great night and nothing's happened. And also, you know, I hate to state the obvious, but I've been extremely drunk. I've put some of my male friends to bed and I've managed not to sexually assault them, you know, and I think that's what we forget. So you are coming up against these kind of really ingrained myths. And unfortunately it just damages the whole conversation and, and it works against strong conviction rates.
0: That point you said is really key because you backed it up by saying in 2016, one study found that zero of the 400 cases that were investigated or, or looked at were real rape and that 70% of rapes are committed by people the victim survivor knew. When it comes to more subtle tropes, in popular culture that may damage the conversation around consent, Tony. You picked out the trope in romantic comedies of girls giving in to guys to go out with them or start relationships with them after they've repeatedly said no to them, which is something that Dr Jessica Taylor brought to the foreground in her book. I've been calling for this for years to stop. Why is this dangerous?
1: Oh, it's dangerous on so many levels, you know, as Dr Taylor points out. It's essentially teaching men never to accept no and for women to eventually give in. So it's dangerous on both sides, and, and again, that can work in the reverse. But particularly, the classic one that I think Dr. Taylor pointed out was like 51st Dates with Adam Sandler and Jerry Barrett. And obviously, every day he goes back to try and convince her and she's like no no you know i'm not interested you're a weird dude and every day he goes back and it gets framed as this dedication of romance but then you know it's very obviously points out a lot of these behaviors when you start taking them out of a romance lens are actually more harassment you know it's like oh he showed up at work and it's like but she didn't tell him where she worked you know and it's all these things that actually when you look at them you go that's harassment that's not a romantic so we normalize it And then, as I said, you then end up with people that don't hear no or think that just means I need to try harder. And then the other end is, oh, well, you know, they've been persistent and then they kind of give in to a date or whatever it may be. So it's really damaging on both sides.
0: I really want to have this discussion, Tony, because I think it's really important that we teach young boys and young girls from a very early age about consent. And I guess on the other side of this coin, a lot of girls, I think, well, maybe in, in the past, have either been told by parents or been told by brothers or something, whatever, that they have to play hard to get, in inverted commas, and treat them mean, keep them keen, and all this sort of stuff, in how they deal with boys. I feel like this greatly confuses young boys. That doesn't actually teach them no means no and consent is final, does it?
1: No, I think we're just not talking about consent full stop, you know, and again, we get into this really difficult discussion of saying boys need to be told no, and it's like everyone needs to be told no, everyone needs to be told that no means no, and that there are multiple of ways of withholding consent or refusing consent without actually saying the word no, but also to feel comfortable with going no, and that's not going to happen, you know, so I think like I know men as well that have done the whole treat them mean keep them keen And, and you know we teach all these stupid bullshit mind games and actually for all the consent education what people greatly miss out on the fact is that predators whether they're 15 and they're putting hands up and down shirts and trousers and what have you and whether it's an adult like they don't give a shit whether you say no or not like that's the point as much as people focus on consent and they say well you know we need to be more consent it's like you just need better sex ed You need to talk about it as a whole. And so I think it just damages the conversation from a very early age. And unfortunately, when things get ingrained at that age, it's very difficult to then pick them apart.
0: On top of all this, Tony, and with everything you had going on in the investigation, you also experienced an unprovoked public physical assault. Do you feel comfortable talking about this? And then how did it add to the turmoil you were experiencing with your mental health at that time?
1: So it was a month after I reported him at police station that I lost my job for it and again in the private sector even though you resign when you're forced out of your job to resign it's called constructive dismissal so it's seen as essentially you've lost your job and two weeks after I lost my job it was summer beautiful weather heat wave and I got physically assaulted by a street-based drinker who I was just sunbathing minding in my own business and and she was with A couple of her friends and she just came over and started shouting abuse at me for being in a bikini sunbathing and it was all very random and I didn't really get it and then she just poured her beer over me and kicked me in the head and went back and sat with her friends as though nothing had happened and at that point I went okay like I don't really know what's going on here and I started collecting my stuff to move and. Two stonemasons from across the river who were working on the flood defense works came over because they saw everything and i was so thankful and i remember calling triple nine and asking for place and i've called triple nine a lot of times over the years for ambulance you know if you see people faint and stuff like that and as the shock was setting in and i was feeling sick and the tears and and my whole body was shaking i remember saying to the operator like really sorry to call you my life's not in danger but I don't know who else to call they were like it's fine and two response officers came out and they were absolutely incredible you know really empathetic and compassionate and again I was just so shocked I was like I don't understand how so much violence has come into my life so quickly and I remember the police took my statement and they took the witness statement and off they went you know my head was really sore and you know I'm thinking Right, I need to be with friends and just to keep an eye in case I go into concussion or anything. And I ran my mum and I thought it was OK. I rang her just to say, I've been assaulted. And she's like, what? And I just burst into tears because it was so random. And I, I'm very fortunate that nothing like that's happened to me. But I just couldn't believe that it happened in quick succession.
0: As a positive note to end this part of the book, Tony, you say how a police ride along with PC Andrews was a massive turning point in your life. Looking back, do you think this was the spark for you to help police with their well-being and mental health, despite the perhaps bad treatment you had had during the investigation? And did you feel a bit conflicted by that at the time?
1: Yeah, definitely. I went on a ride-along after my assault, actually. So the day I got physically assaulted, I noticed that the intake was open to register to become a special, which is voluntary police. And I initially wanted to do that when I moved back from Australia, but they had closed the intake. And I thought, Oh, you know, I had two days left and I thought I'm not ever going to say that getting kicked in the head was a good thing. I was like, but I found that they're open. And a, a couple of days later, our local commanding superintendent rang me and he said, you know, I, I look after violent crime and I pick up with victims to hear about their experiences and what have you. There have been other anti issues around where I lived and where I was assaulted and he was fantastic and i couldn't speak highly enough of the two officers that looked after me that day and i told him that i had applied to become a special and he said have you really and i was like well maybe don't put that in the recruitment posters there i was like get kits in the head and join the specials and he said oh did you know we do ride-alongs and i was like no I, i didn't know you could do that which is a scheme in the uk where any member of the public can request to go on a ride along with local police so that kind of went through all the background checks and it happened in mid-september and i remember that the inspector emailed me and said who i was going to be partnered with and i had this sinking feeling in my stomach that i was going to have to spend i was doing a full full tour so that was a nine-hour shift with a single crew macho man and i just thought i'd just didn't want to do it you know I remember sat in the waiting room ready to go out and shift and I was just shaking thinking oh, I really just don't know if I can do this and that's not to say that PC Andrews is not a macho man <laughs> I should just preface that but he was incredibly emotionally intelligent and I just instantly felt calm as soon as I got in the car with him, and 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 safe. And I could just tell he was a good man. I can't really describe it. And you know, within ten minutes, he sort of said, "Oh, so what brings you on shift?" And I just blurted out, and I went, "You know, was raped by my boss. You know, became pregnant, had a miscarriage, lost my job, physically assaulted. Now I'm here." And he was like, "Fuck." And I think that. just have him acknowledge what I'd been through was so incredibly powerful to me so so powerful and we talked about my boss and what had happened like in between the shouts that we went out on and and the people that we spoke to and you know he said he sounds like a predator and it was the first time it was only second time that somebody had said that to me but it was the first time I'd actually agreed and I was really starting to see my boss and, and what had happened for what it was and we were talking about mental health and I said you know I specialize in men's mental health and we got talking about that and I think you know in police there's there's this saying that every contact leaves a trace it's called Locard's principle and the idea is that in this world you just touch people you impact on people and for me he was incredibly impactful and and I often think if I'd not had a good experience on that shift with him being the man that he was I probably wouldn't have started to campaign and advocate for men in police as as much so I do. I do feel conflicted at times because so many men in police did dismiss me and hurt me but what I take comfort from is that the men I support, I am filled, like my life is full of good men and it's full of good policemen and that has been probably the best nurturing tool to my trauma I could have ever had.
0: In the second part of the book, Tony, the book takes a real academic swing and I think it's one that you should be really proud of because there's so much research and evidence chucked into it. It discusses all about rape and the criminal justice system itself so we're going to pick out a few discussion points here. Firstly you talk about the difficulties of getting sexually inappropriate staff disciplined because of employment practices whereby victim survivors might never know if they get justice because they won't be told their abuser has been dismissed. How difficult is that when it comes to closure do you think?
1: For me personally I felt trapped because When you report or when you do anything, if you do an action, you expect a consequence and to not be allowed to be told of that consequence is devastating because you don't know if anything did happen to them or if it was just kind of swept under the rug. It's very difficult to say, you know, to put all that emotional labour into reporting to your manager or colleagues and then not to have the reward of a demonstrable consequence. So again, in the private sector, you can put in a complaint and even though it's your complaint about another colleague, because that's the other colleague's HR file and in terms of the consequence, you can't be told. And I remember when I was calling solicitors for advice about what I was going through at my law firm and, and I distinctly remember that one man said, you'll never get justice and closure because you can't be told what the results were. It made it feel all pointless that what's the point of speaking up if you never know what the results are? And that's not to say that some workplaces won't be obvious, but legally it's it's a very difficult balance to hold and I, I don't think it swings in the favour of the victim-survivor.
0: We talked a lot off-air, Tony, about workplace trauma and how that can carry through when you leave a particular toxic work environment and go to another place. Can you talk about that and perhaps the stigmas behind it? Is this something you were really passionate about?
1: Yeah, I think certainly as, as we get into that adult corporate world, whatever organisation or sector you work in, we talk a lot about bullying. And, you know, most workplaces will have some kind of staff handbook that talk about policies and what to do if things don't go your way or if there's a disciplinary and things like that. But I don't think we acknowledge the trauma that that can hold. You know, if we use the word bullying, it's sort of, you think about school days and children, and it's just a bit of name calling. And actually, when you speak to those, and I've had it before, you know, I was a whistleblower for an organisation. And I had a nervous breakdown as a result because of the way I was treated. And eight years later, and I still, if I smell my old boss's aftershave, I just freeze. I think we don't talk about it as trauma, we talk about it as bullying and it's not that bad and you just need to move teams or perhaps you need to move workplaces. But that trauma stays with you, uh, particularly if you end up working in the same sector, even if it's a different organisation. So we carry that, we carry that in our body, we carry that in our muscles, in our memory, in our emotions. So if you're going into a similar workplace, even if you've left an an old organisation, you're still going to be carrying that. And I think we dismiss the power of workplace toxic behaviours because we need workplaces. We don't have money on trees. We are dependent on work to pay our bills. And so we have this unfortunate toxic tie to a lot of these places where... We are forced to go in and face these toxic cultures and bosses because our lives literally depend on on a paycheck at the end of the month. So for me, I don't think we talk about the power of a negative workplace and culture enough. And I don't think we talk about it in serious enough terms to convey its severity.
0: There might be men listening to this pod, Tony, who have no idea about how to spot the signs that their mate or person in their life might be exhibiting creepy behaviour or even worse, behaviour towards women that, if left unchallenged, might lead to something far, far worse. How important is it for other men to challenge this behaviour when they see it? You framed this around a Daniel Sloss quote, who's a comedian from the UK, which I thought was very relatable.
1: Yeah, for me, it's a very difficult spectrum. At what point do you intervene? At what point does your mate's or does your colleague or your boss's comments go from that's perhaps a bit of Unprofessional banter to that's misogynistic, that's sexist, that's discriminatory, that's sexual harassment. I've got a good friend of mine called Graham Golden, and he works a lot around violence of men and boys. You know, he really focuses on the bystander effect, and at what point do you intervene? And it's it's very subjective because what is acceptable by some is not acceptable. another whether it's a group or individuals and I think part of me thinks that the reason why we constantly seem to find ourselves as a society in this us versus them this women versus men discussion when it comes to sexual violence is because as women we can identify it very clearly whereas men won't necessarily be able to or don't want to you know it's both blissful and will for ignorance at times so it becomes an issue that only women will speak up about because it's, quote, only women that can identify it. So then a lot of men will say, oh, well, it's women, you know, we can't do anything right. And some of that will come out of genuine blissful ignorance. So they don't understand a comment. Whereas if you say a same situational comment to a woman, we completely understand that that's not appropriate. So I think, as we were saying earlier, it really needs to come back to this conversation around consent and and discussing what is and isn't appropriate. But I think we really need to get men to have those uncomfortable conversations and to actually say how you're talking about your girlfriend or that colleague is just not appropriate. And you don't have to use posh words; you can just say "not cool, mate." Like that was not cool. That shit's not cool. And have those simple boundaries to say. Look, you've said all this on a night out. I'm just not cool with that. And I don't want you using that language, or I just don't want to be your mate. I think there needs to be that challenge because we can't keep allowing women to do the majority of the work. And, you know, let's be honest, so men also assault other men, you know. So it, it really is important that men talk about this and not have a, you know, sense of apathy, which is, is what Daniel Sloss talks about, saying that. You know, a lot of men have that, oh, I'll I'll beat up a rapist. And he's like, well, instead of feeling like that, you know, trying to get your man points, fucking prevent one. He talks about that because he says very honestly that he saw signs in his friend's behaviour over the years about how he treated women, and he didn't call him out, and then that friend raped Daniel's friend. And he feels the guilt of that. So I think a lot of men sometimes they do see it, but they just don't necessarily have that impetus to get them over the line enough to challenge it. And that comes back to men have smaller social circles than women do. So, you know, if they've got four mates and they challenge one, suddenly they're down to three. It's all these other, you know, multifaceted conversations that you need to recognize that there are barriers. But I think for me, I'm not saying it's all on men to call it out, I'm not saying it's all on women. I just think a lot of men are really good men Absolutely, I know that because I've got dozens of them in my life. But within that goodness is a lot of apathy towards behaviours. So, and I think that's what I would like to see improving.
0: Given all these traumatic events you experienced, Tony, I guess therapy was a given for you. One massive commonality with my journey was that you said from August 2018, when you started therapy, it took you 273 days from the date of your rape to say, I was raped. It took me six sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy out of eight I was given in 2014 to 2015 to say I was bullied. How did it feel when you said those words? Was it liberating, freeing, or maybe even triggering because of your previous reluctance to be labeled a victim?
1: I think devastating and very, as you just said, a real reluctancy. I think again, we are going back to this sort of real rape trope that we have in society. When your experience falls below that, and I say, quote, below, because, you know, we compare experiences and everybody's trauma is different, it allows victims to minimise their experience and their trauma. And so I remember going in for my first session just to meet her and, and to talk about what was going on. And I said, oh, I was sexually assaulted. And I explained everything that had happened. And I remember that the next session we went in, she said... I went back and confirmed what I thought was correct, and I I checked the legal definition. She said you were raped, and I was like, no, I wasn't. I categorically denied it, and that is both a conscious and unconscious trauma response for me. As I said, when I'm traumatized, I just get on with life, I just put the makeup on and off I go, and I went into total denial. And every time she would gently remind me, um, and that's not to coach me to say, oh, I was raped, you know, she was just gently reminding me, as a good therapists do, to try and say, no, it was rape. And, and I could get to the point where I could say it was rape, or the rape. But the first time I said it was to PC Andrews, outside of therapy, when I just blurted out, it was like, oh, I was raped. And it's three tiny words, and I don't remember when I said them in therapy, But it was almost as though I just didn't feel like the words coming out of my mouth were mine. And that even though I was saying I was raped, there was still a part of me going, but you're not really a victim because he didn't beat you and you don't remember it. And I think it's very, again, in society, I think there's a lot of people that just expect you to be raped in the next day or the same evening you show up at a police station or a sexual assault referral centre and you know you take all the swabs and you get your clothes done like they show on the media and it's far more complex than that there's so many layers that you have to unpick as a victim survivor before you're able to sort of accept that it's happened so it was really important that she never let me retreat to that sexual assault like she wouldn't every time But we knew it was in the room where she would every now and then just gently remind me going, no, you were raped or it was raped. Like he's a rapist, which was really important when I was drowning in self-blame.
0: You had various forms of therapy to address your trauma, Tony. We have both done eye movement desensitisation and recognition therapy or EMDR. It worked wonders for me and I still need to do more of it. But for you, it wasn't as productive and helpful. Tell the listeners what that is and why it wasn't helpful for you, and then your therapy journey more widely. I'm particularly keen here to shine a light, as you said, on your wonderful therapist, Sue.
1: So EMDR is different depending on the practitioner, but essentially it's about picking specific memories and using eye movement and and other forms of physical touch on your body to essentially train the brain and retrain it so that whilst you may still have the memory of an event, its impact on your body and your on your mind lessons. For me, I think it probably wasn't as impactful as I needed it to be because by the time I started EMDR, I'd already been in talking therapy for about 18 months. So I'd worked through a lot of my sort of acute trauma and distress already. And then obviously with the pandemic, It was all held online via video and so you had tech issues and you know I feel like with therapy and emotive topics like that you need to be in the room to read each other. So for a multitude of reasons it it, it didn't really do much for me and and I have now gone back to my therapist Sue who is my age and she takes no shit especially from me but she's my constant champion and, and she always reminds me of my strength even when I sat there sobbing wanting to die she's absolutely incredible for me and and i think it's really important to highlight at this point that people go into therapy for a lot of different reasons and they'll say it won't necessarily work for them but i would say there's lots of different therapies out there and actually you might not gel with your therapist i was also referred to rape crisis by the team uh, by the police and rape crisis offer free counseling and I went and I was just re going over everything I'd already done with Sue. So I didn't continue that. I continued to work with Sue, who's a paid therapist. So I think it's really difficult and I'm very privileged that I can just about afford therapy to a point. My mum has had to pay for it at times, but yeah, Sue's saved my life countless times, even if it was just a case of keeping me going until I knew I had that next session in the diary.
0: There was a moment in therapy you talk about in the book where you said you realized that every romantic relationship you had up to that point was with manipulative men. How hard was that fact to accept?
1: Oh, that's an absolute shitter. It was one of those kind of light bulb moments where you want to smash the light bulb. it comes on and you think that nah, I want to go back to the dark room. It was very difficult and and for me again, it comes back to this. If we're not taught how to appropriately label poor behaviours, toxic behaviours, abusive behaviours for what they are, we can't identify them, which means that you unintentionally have this pattern that you don't recognise that you're part of or that you're doing consciously or otherwise. And as I said, again, I think we're getting better at discussing the emotional and mental abuse, so whether it's gaslighting, narcissism, coercion, which I do think will help many people recognise and go, actually, there's a difference between the odd lie and the odd manipulation too. that's an obvious pattern of behaviour. So it was very difficult and, and I felt stupid. You know, I thought, how can a smart woman like me... Like, I'm world smart, I've been backpacking on my own throughout the world, I'm intellectually smart, and I thought... How did I fall for this shit, you know, when I look at it now? And and I think, unfortunately, because I had that so much with my boss and looking back on behaviours with that newfound clarity of hindsight, once I was far enough away from my trauma, it made me realise that I was perfectly, like, right from my father's behaviour, I was perfectly set up for Lucifer to rape me because I'd been so accepting of those behaviours. And so it really was difficult and I felt... It added a layer of self-blame that it was my fault that I was traumatised from these men because I'd walked right into them. So difficult reflection.
0: You talk in the book about two trauma concepts, one called sanctuary and one called betrayal. Can you explain what they are to listeners and how those two different strands of trauma can affect someone's mental health?
1: They can be seen as the same thing, but I tend to view them differently. So betrayal trauma tends to be where person has usually an interpersonal trauma so that could be an abusive relationship could be neglect something like that but essentially where you have a strong bond with that person that strong emotional connection and you survive on them for well-being in whatever it may be you know friendship that's not to say that if you get lighter or you get betrayed that you should call it trauma we're talking about again the extent of what you go through But for me, it really highlighted my relationship with my boss because he was in a position of trust and, and I did was friendly with him and I did consider him an acquaintance that I quite liked and it goes against what you're told, you know, it's that total betrayal of trust that you should have in that person. And then I view sanctuary trauma as more of when I disclose to police. So sanctuary trauma is mainly talked about in the military, but is essentially where you have a severe stressor or event or trauma, you next encounter what you think is going to be a supportive or protective environment. And actually that adds more trauma. So for me, it was the betrayal trauma with my boss and then going to the police and reporting and then actually being told, well, you said yes, it's, and just being victim blamed and going, well, it's sort of your fault for saying yes. So you really have these, complete betrayals across and trauma across both avenues particularly when you're talking about acquaintance rape that again we talk about the trauma of the rape but actually the trauma of the relationship that you have with that rapist or or the relationship that you have with whoever you disclose to whether it's a, a GP or a police if it's not then an empathetic and an understanding environment that you go to it, it further adds to it
0: As a final question before we move on to part three and the final part of the book, Tony, the idea of turning a negative into a positive is well established in therapy and mental health. But you use the term post-traumatic growth to describe your journey. And I think it's such a powerful way of describing it. It's one I've heard psychologists use a lot. You said, quote, my rape has allowed me to find my life's purpose, but I didn't do that to the exclusion of having days where I could do nothing but beg the world to kill me. How do you feel hearing those words said back to you
1: like a different life like that was a it's one of those situations where because so much of the book was emotive to me and i didn't actually remember writing a lot of it so when i read it back i'd forgotten i'd written certain things and i really had to sort of stop and think whoa okay and again you know i read that and i just think Wow, I've come so far from that person that just wanted to die every day and then just was hoping someone would do it for me or something would do it for me. And I think, you know, as much as my get up, go out into the world and just ignore how I'm feeling and just put on that brave face didn't do me any favours in a lot of ways with my trauma. I think that just push on also helped me because... I used my experience in, in connecting with the police as a, as a victim to then this national reputation for men's mental health in police and in emergency services. And I think that also came from that stubborn, just get on with life, put on a brave face, put your makeup on, get out into the world. And I think I say I'm lucky to have that because what I don't like is this conversation that I think it's really important that you've used the term victim survivor throughout because if we say victim we have this connotation that they're weak they're helpless they're powerless and then you've got the survivor who's overcome and you know has beat the odds and they've survived everything and actually it's both you know you are both I, i don't believe you go from a victim to a survivor i think you're both at the same time and i don't think it's a failure on any victim If they can't get their shit together afterwards, because I look like I've got my shit together, but there are some days I really don't. I was lucky that my drinking stopped and I could stop my drinking, but some people can't, some people are never able to recover from the trauma. And I think we view that as some kind of personal failing instead of recognizing that there's a multitude of reasons why that doesn't happen. And for me, I was very lucky with the people that I had in my life and the new people that came in so as much as i'm exceptionally proud of what i've turned my experience into i also recognize that even if i didn't do all that even if i just got up and i got out of bed every day and i went to work that's enough and i think certainly the media portrayal of rape, right, particularly of women is you either become this woman that just quits her job stays in her sweatpants and never leaves her house for six months or you get this really powerful looking woman that just takes no shit from men and she's bossing it and and both are simultaneously correct and false because we're a balance so as much as I'm proud I, I would also say to listeners it it's not a failure it's not a personal failure if, if you can't achieve what I have I've achieved what I have as you've just said then not to the exclusions of days where I just wanted the world and me to end. So it's really important that we recognise that everybody's journey and experience is very, very different.
0: In the final part of the book, Tony, you chart the last one to two years of your mental health journey, where some things have, like you said already, got significantly better in your life, whilst other aspects, unfortunately, have got significantly worse. In November 2019, you tried to take your own life, and you say it was the most serious one you'd ever done. If you could, just tell me how you felt and the events leading up to that moment, including at the train station, and then maybe the event itself, and what stopped you?
1: This is the first time I've actually ever verbalised my attempt. And it feels weird, because it was so serious, and yet I I often said to my friends in the weeks after, I almost died. And nobody knew. And I think for me, I often talk about trauma as grief and, you know, we recognize that, you know, there's the five stages of grief and what, you know, depression, anger and acceptance and all that kind of stuff. And we are big at encouraging that process because we recognize that process that you have to deal with it. You have to accept it. And I often say, just like trauma and grief, it's when everything goes quiet. You know, so when somebody dies and and we're full of heartbreak, we've still got those calls to make. We've still got to contact friends and family. We've got arrangements for funerals to make. And it's not until that last person shuts the door on the funeral wake that you're left with nothing but your grief and trauma. And that's when it really hits. And I think for me, because so much of my trauma was so public and I had to continue working with him for you know, three months before he quit and, and all this other kind of stuff happened that I was so busy waiting to hit back from my OIC and then waiting to hit back from my ISFA and going to therapy that it was, I got the decision letter and then that was it. It was just my meeting. And then there was no more calls. There was no more diary appointments to make, you know, my case was closed. And, and I think. For me, my attempt in November was that delayed grief of all that trauma, like all that 18 months, all the trauma before that night. And it was as though someone had finally shut the door and I was left with nothing but my grief. And I did an event around men's mental health, it went really well. And for lots of different reasons, it triggered me. And then I just had another trigger a couple of days later and it completely sent me over the edge and and I suppose again we talk about suicide saying, "Oh, you know, you'll get all these warning signs. My friends had no warning, like nobody knew i I remember that I walked home from therapy and and I just remember crying all the way home. I didn't really consciously think about suicide; I just was so absolute, I was so. I need to die. Like there was no, I don't want to be in pain anymore. I was, I want to die. I do not want to exist. And, and it was a horrific, like weather wise. And I don't really remember much of my thought process. I just remember being at the side of train tracks. And aside from when I'd briefly thought about it, when I'd seen Lucifer at the station, I always thought, oh, I could never throw myself in front of a train, you know, because what would that do to the train driver and, and and other people witnessing it but every time i just had this connotation and i still have it now every time i'm on my on a train i'm hyper vigilant now waiting to see lucifer at a station or on the train and i just remember being at the side of the tracks and it was pouring with rain you could barely see in front of your face and then just as the headlights were coming in i remember looking at it and i could, i had no idea how far away they were i couldn't i couldn't judge and then It felt like just at the last moment I had this brief, you know, clarity, came in and went, you can't support police officers and then do this to them and have them pick up your limbs. It was such a random but piercing thought. And then I'd obviously made it home and I ate every pill I had. And when I look now and I think about the dose that I took and the types of medication, there is no way I should have survived that. And I remember waking up in the morning and I was soaked through to the bone and I was shivering because I'd clearly come back in the middle of the night and or morning and had been soaked through with rain and there was just a massive puddle on the, on my bedroom floor. And I just didn't know what to say to anyone. I just told no one. I'd said that on the night before, I think it was, I was like, oh, I'm coming off Twitter. Oh, like, I've had bad news and I just want time out. Which was unusual for me anyway because I'm always on Twitter, it it helps support my mental health and I just wasn't answering calls or anything like that. But I was so shocked to have survived that again I just got changed and I was halfway into town before I'd even realised I'd left my house the next day and I was in the coffee shop to work on the book or to just write, that was my ingrained habit and I was still having to hold shop walls because I was dizzy from all the drugs and I didn't go for help because part of me was really hoping the drugs would get me at some point during the day. And I, I didn't tell anyone for days and I went back to work and I remember one of my directors just said, are you okay? And I was like, oh yeah, I'm just really tired, Like I've had some bad news, it's gone really sorry. And then over the coming days, the shock worsened. So I went into like physiological symptoms of shock because I had no expectation of surviving. And it wasn't until about two weeks later, I agreed to meet a friend and I'm always contactable, but I just wasn't answering people's messages at all. Wasn't answering their phone calls, which is very unlike me. And when I finally met a friend and I said, I tried to jump in front of a train and then I took a huge od and i don't really know how i'm alive part of me still felt like i wasn't alive part of me thought am i in some weird purgatory and you know thankfully my friend was really really supportive as they all were and once i told him i ended up telling a few of my friends and a few police officers that i have become very good friends and they were all really empathetic and sympathetic and nobody judged me for it but it was really hard because just as then those like two weeks of shock symptoms went, I was just absolutely apoplectic with rage that I was still alive when I tried so hard not to be. I was just full of anger and I couldn't speak at times because all I wanted to do was die. And I was like, quote, the universe wouldn't even let me do that. And to have to go through that and continue going to work full time and put my makeup on and go out into the world was so hard when you know the classic if i'd been in a car crash and i'd broken my leg i could have posted a picture of me in hospital and said i'm in hospital i broke my leg and people would offer sympathy and what have you and and i couldn't you know i i just didn't feel able to tell anyone which made it worse It was incredibly difficult few weeks and it wasn't really until, I mean, that was, yeah, end of November and I'd probably say end of January where the rage started to go and I accepted that I was still alive, but it was some of the most lonely and difficult and painful weeks I've ever had.
0: You said in the book, quote, I died twice. The night Lucifer raped me and the night I stood on the train tracks. Quote, and yet you are very much alive now. Do you feel alive, Tony?
1: No, not always. Sometimes I still feel like I'm existing. And that's okay. Like, I have lots and lots of good days. But I think it's true. It's I very much think when it comes to sexual violence, there's a before you and there's an after you it's just before that time and after that time and and you're changed you're irrevocably changed and and that's not to say that our rapists ruin our lives but we do have to recognize that they they have indelibly changed us in in some ways and i think it was accurate to say that i very much had to reconcile with the fact that I was still alive when I didn't want to be. And now, as I say, I have far, far more good days than bad, but some days I still feel like I'm just existing and, and I'm okay with that. I still feel loved and cared for and, and I know I'm doing incredible work and, and I have a very busy, but extremely fulfilling life. But I think again, coming back to that victim and survivor, I think there's this archaic notion that you get over things. And I don't really think that we do. I think we just learn to carry our grief and trauma in better ways and some days are better than others. But yeah, for me, yeah, I died twice and that takes a lot to deal with privately. Tell
0: me about the Tony moving forward now. How have you progressed? What traumas or triggers have you overcome? What ambitions do you have and how have you learned How to love yourself and feel yourself again yet?
1: Um, Goodness, so many traumas and triggers. But I think for me, my biggest trigger has been men in authority, whether that's your boss, whether it's police. I do find that really hard at times still, even though I work a lot with police and I, you know, sometimes I look at my phone and I look at the names and ranks of people in there and it blows my mind when I think, I remember, and, and I've said this with him before, that I was lucky that the initial superintendent who called about my physical assault, I then presented to my service, as you said, and out of that presentation I connected with another superintendent, and they're now both chief supers. But I remember that there were times when I was through that investigation that I couldn't even look those men in the eye, because I felt so ashamed. and. Now I have no problem not only speaking to these men and looking at them, but challenging them around really important things. And I know that I can go into a room full of powerful men and still command their respect and attention. And that's been huge for me. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but I would say that's my biggest trigger. And you can imagine how often I have the potential to face men in authority so it's not comfortable but that has been I suppose my biggest achievement because I realised after my rape that I never really stood up for men because my dad always told me you know he he taught me that there was no point arguing back or speaking up because my voice didn't matter against a man's so for years I was very polite and and accepted poor behaviours when I shouldn't or wish that I hadn't So I think that has been my biggest achievement since. But I think, you know, it's like anyone with trauma, you just learn to manage it. And whilst I'm not acutely distressed anymore and I, I feel like with trauma, one of your biggest issues in, in society is not knowing your triggers, because once you know your triggers and understand them, it's not about avoiding them it's about working through them. But until you can actively identify a trigger, you can't work to get through it. Whereas, thankfully, because of my years of mental illness have allowed my, a very high level of self-awareness. And, you know, I've spent 20 years supporting other people with their mental illness. And that really gives me the opportunity to pick things apart and go, okay, well, this is this and this is that. Whereas other people, don't have that and so they can still be triggered years later and again that's not to shame anyone that still gets triggered later because i still do i'm just better at managing them and i'm better at learning how to look after myself when i do face those triggers or when i do have a traumatic day and i think yeah i think i thank therapy for that and i researching my book which has allowed that which is a privilege many people don't have unfortunately
0: as a final question tony on this part of the pod I want to lead with this quote you said, though I have never been stronger, I've also never been so broken, despite all the lives I've saved and changed in the months and years after. Who's the Tony speaking to me now, and what has this book taught you about yourself, do you think?
1: I think I have reconciled with the fact that I can be both, that I can be victim survivor, and that I can have broken parts, but not be broken. And I think we're all broken by trauma and what have you. And again, it's it's not to shame anyone that struggles more than someone else with their trauma and the after effects. It's very subjective. But I think for me personally, as I said, I have never felt stronger in the sense of I finally feel as though I can speak to professional men, I can command rooms of Royal Marines, military men, and that's huge for me. And I know that when I go into a room, I'm the expert on my topic and as I said to go from someone that couldn't even hold my head up and look a professional man in the eye that's been huge and I've definitely found that my body confidence has shot up because for so long I felt like being viewed as sexy was why I was raped because that's what he said like he loved looking at my body and and so I hated my body and just thought I don't want to look like I do, whereas now I'm leaning into it more and going, yeah, do you know what, I've got hip-length blonde hair, I love makeup, I love dressing sexy, like, that. I like that, and I'm okay with that now, because in part I think I've been surrounded by so many men who have helped nurture me and and given me compliments without being, as you were saying earlier, but like being creepy, like not being predatory, they would just say, I really like your dress or I like your outfit and how are you feeling today and... That really helped normalise again the conversation. So in many ways, I've never been more self-confident, and I think that is because he broke me. He completely broke me. And I say it in the book, you know, if if you imagine trauma and as a Jenga tower, he didn't just topple my tower, but he toppled my tower and then completely infected my foundation. And I've had to rebuild myself whilst grieving an old version of me I wasn't ready to say goodbye whilst also working out who the new me is and I think I'm finally at the point where I go I know who I am and that's a level of confidence and self-love that not many people have the benefit of and I, I do think it is important to just say that I don't like this narrative of you have to be broken to then be the strongest version you can be or the best version you can be. Um, I think that's really important to highlight that I was still a brilliant woman even before he did what he did. I was always enough and I would say that to listeners like you are enough whether you can do what I do or you can only manage a cup of tea in your day like you are enough and I think, yes, it's it's beautiful to love myself and love my confidence. But as you said, like, I, I don't do that to exclusion of not having days where I just wish it had never happened. So, yeah, there's broken parts in me and, and on tough days I feel unlovable. Like, who could love me with all my shit, right? But I think we all go through that. Like, whether we have anxiety or whether we've got schizophrenia or whatever it may be, you think, who could love me for all my shit? And what I would say to that is, a lot of people, my rape cost me a lot of people in my life. I walked away from friends, or they walked away from me. I walked away from a lot of my family because of their views. But in those three years, which, you know, the last few years have been undoubtedly the worst three years of my life, my life was also absolutely flooded with good new people who saw me and who met me and who came into my life at the worst part of my life and they stayed and i think that's really important to just remember for both myself and other people listening that you can feel broken and you can feel unlovable but you can be broken and strong and you can be loved even when you feel unlovable
0: Thank you for listening to part one of Ella Brook's story. If you'd like to listen to part two and find out how Ella's journey continues, then find it wherever you get your podcasts from. I'll put a link to where you can buy Ella's book in the show notes of both episodes and where you can follow her on Twitter. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.